In this economy, are you making the money you could be making? Welcome to High Yield with your hosts, Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. The old ways don't work anymore. So let Frank and Dave help you find new high-yielding opportunities. You can start by tuning in for the next hour. Now, here's Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. Thanks, everyone, for being here at High Yield, where the show that explores new ways to prosper in a very, very troubled America. This is Frank Roth, along with me is Dave Reynolds, and today we're going to be talking about the self-storage investing and the high-yield opportunities there are in self-storage investing. Let's start off with a little history of self-storage. For those of you who are unfamiliar, I think we all drive by them along the highway and see those bright orange doors from public storage and such, but we don't know exactly where they came from. So here's a quick overview. The industry started about 6,000 years ago in China. That was the first recorded self-storage facility. And back then in China, 6,000 years ago, you didn't have lockers with roll-up doors like you have today. You had pots. So what would happen is people would put whatever they wanted to store in a pot, and then they had these giant caves in China, and they would take all the pots and store them in the cave, and they would have some kind of guard to guard the cave. And that was the first form of self-storage that anyone has ever seen. In the U.S., self-storage started in about 1850, and it started by Beacons. You've all heard of Beacons Van Lines. Well, Beacons was the very first self-storage company in about 1850, so we're talking about a decade before the Civil War. And the reason they came into existence was during the gold rush, during a lot of that westward expansion, uh, people would go out west to try and make their fortune and leave all their possessions in the east because they couldn't carry much on their on their burrow or on their wagon. So they would leave all their you know personal effects in storage with beacons. So back in 1850, beacons was the was the beginner. In fact, there's one other interesting bit of trivia on beacons. Beacons, as they kept expanding this new concept of self storage. They built a large concrete warehouse in San Francisco right prior to the San Francisco earthquake, and it was one of only two structures to survive the earthquake. So Beacons was always thinking way, I guess, way ahead of their time. The, basically, the modern industry as we know it today, the kind that you and I have self-storage lockers at, that began in about 1972 in El Cajon, I hope I pronounced that correct, California, and that was a the first public storage facility. So public storage is pretty much given the top spot in industry history as the originator of what is now the modern self-storage industry, and it started in about 1972. So it is probably among the youngest real estate niches there is. You know, Dave and I are huge owners of mobile home parks, but mobile home parks began operation, many of them all the way back in the 1930s and 40s. So Self-storage is even younger than mobile home parks. It's younger than RV parks. It's, it's about as young as you can get, actually. Uh, some other interesting statistics on the industry, if you're not familiar with these. Some of these are jaw-droppers. Uh, first, which is not that shocking, there's about 52,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. So that's a lot, and it's right in line with mobile home parks. There's about 50,000 mobile home parks in the U.S., so that number isn't, isn't that alarming. Now, this next one's a little freaky. There are three times the size of Manhattan under roof in self-storage in the U.S. That's a, that's a huge number, so imagine that for a minute. Take Manhattan Island, triple that, and then build a roof over it, and that is how much self-storage we have in the United States. It's, it's a big industry, obviously, based on what I just told you on that. 
It's about a $5.2 billion annual revenue industry. Uh, 10% of all American families, in fact, have a self-storage unit, and I'm guilty as well. I've got not only one, I have two of them. So uh, I guess I am just like the rest of Americans out there. Uh, I'm in that 10% who have those. Uh, now, this next statistic is, is the really, I guess, the most shocking of all of them, uh, which exemplifies not only what makes the industry tick, but also just what makes Americans so unique. There is more self-storage space in the U.S. than the entire rest of the world combined. So think about that for a minute. In other words, if we took the entire world, I mean, the U.S. has, what, roughly 300 humans. You take the rest of the world, which is billions and billions and billions of people, all the self-storage there is for the whole rest of the world, for all those billions of people, is all combined is less than what we have here in the U.S. And to put that in perspective, England, which is a fairly prosperous, very large developed country, has only 20 million square feet of self-storage as compared to the U.S., which has 1.6 billion square feet. So obviously self-storage is a very, very big industry here in the U.S., and that's what kind of makes it an exciting high-yield opportunity is because it is such a big part of the American lifestyle. So yeah, now let's talk about why, why someone would want to invest in self-storage. Sure. So, you know, really the first thing is, uh, you know, as compared to other commercial opportunities out there, you know, apartment buildings or uh, strip centers or office space, you know, the cap rates on self-storage um, are usually much higher um, as, you know, when you go in to purchase a self-storage facility, your cap rate's going to be higher going in, which, you know, makes your cash flow, uh, you know, higher than, you know, those typical other types of commercial properties. Right. Uh, ne- next reason would be low operating cost. You know, Dave and I are in the mobile home park industry, and we feel like we have a low operating cost because we often have parks that run only 30% expense ratios. But uh, self-storage is right in that same boat. They have a lower expense ratio than most all other forms of real estate simply because, bear in mind, the tenant doesn't live there, so they're not drawing much utilities. And normally those facilities, although large, are run by just one manager or a husband and wife team of managers. So basically they, they you know, when you make a dollar in self-storage, you know, you you don't pay a whole lot of that dollar out in in expenses, unlike a lot of other forms of real estate. Right, and there's a lot of new technology and stuff out there with self storage that has actually pushed those expenses lower. That's, that's exactly true. Um, you know, the next item, you know, of why you would want to invest in self storage is, you know, you you basically have a you know, big diversity of you know, your tenants, and like a you know a you know an office building or a, you know shopping center where you may have only one or two or, you know, ten, you know, big tenants, you know, in a self-storage facility, you might have a hundred units and you have a hundred different tenants. Right. So you're much more diversity there. So if one of those tenants goes away, you know, it's only affecting 1% of your revenue, whereas in a, you know, a shopping center, if one of your 10 tenants goes away, that's 10%. Or, you know, if you only had five tenants, you know, that's 20%. So that's a big difference. And, you know, same you know, it works the same way with, you know, mobile home parks where, you know, it's a real big diversity um, of tenants. Right. Uh, next is, and you probably have seen this on such shows as Storage Wars, but self-storage has a very unique delinquency process. If you don't pay your self-storage rent, what they do is they simply seize whatever, whatever's in your locker and sell, and sell it off. And because they have this ability to kind of basically repo your personal effects, it gets people to be very focused on, obviously, A, paying their rent, 
And B, if you don't pay your rent, often the self-storage can uh, sell that locker for as much or more than the rent itself. So uh, that it gives you a, a superior delinquency process and a great way to always make sure you get paid. For sure. Um, you know, another item is you know basically all of your you know, you know leases or storage agreements are going to typically be you know month to month or um, you know very short term. So you're not so you're not you know typically locking somebody in for you know five years at a fixed rate. You know, you know so with your shorter term you know leases or you know whatever agreement you know you have with that storage facility, you know you can you have the ability to you know push the rents up you know after a few months or you know if you if you, if you need to to you know increase your bottom line, so you can actually raise rents easier in a self storage facility than you can in you know, other types of investments. Typically. Right, exactly. Uh, next is uh, you know for those people out there who may be in California and Florida and other markets where there's rent control and different rent regulations, uh, in self storage there is no such rent regulation because it's not a form of housing. So you know perhaps that's why self storage has done so well in California. Is because it circumvents the uh, the rent control laws, so you're free to raise the rents to really whatever anyone will pay. So that's that's another reason self storage is an interesting angle to invest in. And you know another you know great thing about self storage is you know you basically you own a building and people you know store stuff inside that building, and you know when they decide to move out or whatever, you know typically as long as you know they haven't you know ran into the building with their car or something you know your your cleanup expenses you basically go in there and sweep it out and and uh you know it, so it's very very easy management you know you 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 collect you collect the rent and if somebody moves out somebody moves in you know it's typically rather than going in and recarpeting and hanging up new fixtures fixing the utilities and all of that you know, you're basically just sweeping out the storage facility and you're maintaining the you know outside of the building you're maintaining the you know, the concrete that the building sits on, and you know, it's, that's pretty much it. You know, it's very, very simple as compared to other types of investments. Right. Uh, ne- next is there are no folks living on site in that facility besides your managers, so there's a lot lower hassle and liability. You know, in a world where you have different apartment tenants who claim black mold or they claim that the security of the complex was not good or whatever the case may be. You don't have much of that in self-storage because the people don't physically live there. I mean, I, for example, with my self-storage lockers, I go down there, you know, let's see, uh, at Christmas time to get the Christmas tree and stuff out. Uh, went down there a month or so ago. My daughter had left something in her book bag from last year. I had to go get, a, like, a calculator out. But you're not there very much. I mean, if you look in a typical year, how often am I there? I might be there cumulatively in an entire year, I don't think I would even make it one hour. So basically, you know, and that's true of most people who have these. So, so you do not have anyone really on site to cause problems or slip and fall or, or do much anything, and that really reduces your liability and your risk. For sure. Um, next item, you know, is just the availability of financing out there. You know, you know, even though self storage is a relatively new uh, industry, you know, there, you know, historically has been very good financing. You know, you know, as long as the occupancy and the historical numbers are looking good, and um, you know, there are a lot of banks out there that are, you know, making these self storage loans. So the, you know, it's pretty pretty simple. You know, for a credit worthy buyer to go out and get a loan on a self storage. Right, and then uh, last but not least, the solid demand. And we're going to go over this further in a minute, but basically, 
you know, for lots of reasons, from the baby boomers to just basically the troubled American economy itself. There's lots of reasons why self-storage demand is strong and keeps growing stronger uh, by the day. And uh, that's that's what makes this, in fact, a high-yield opportunity out there is because the demand is strong and is solid. It allows you to increase rents and make higher yields and self-storage a lot of other different forms of, of real estate. And I guess we're going to go to break here. Uh, in a minute, we're going to come back and talk about what makes a successful storage self-storage facility and then how to get in the industry and then additionally just the future of the industry and where we see it heading. So this is Frank Roth and Dave Reynolds. We'll be right back in just a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you are looking for the highest yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20% plus returns on your money and offers you college-quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today. Mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self-storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com or call 800-950-1364. That number again is 800-950-1364. Or visit the website at CREUniversity.com. The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest-income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus and Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303-328-2049. That's 303-328-2049. Hi, I'm Kurt Kelly, president of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self-storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need, explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800-458-4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to insure investment properties. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can send an email to frank.rolfe 
at gmail.com. Now, back to High Yield. Welcome back to High Yield. Today we're talking about the exciting concept of self-storage investing and the high yield opportunities there are in that relatively young but fairly well-known niche of real estate. We've talked about so far the history of the industry, some kind of interesting statistics, why you should invest in it. Now we're going to move on to some basics of what makes a successful self-storage facility. And I have to tell you on the front end, these are basic guidelines. I mean, it is possible to have a self-storage facility that does not meet one or more of these items but these are pretty much felt to be the, the key items, in our opinion, that make a, a facility work over those that, that sometimes fail. Uh, the, the first item here is about 50,000 people within about a three-mile radius of the property. And I think the key takeaway from that, that initial guideline is you've got to have a lot of population density. These things do not tend to work well in an area that's got beautiful scenery and rolling mountains with not many people because, again, uh, we know we know from experience and from statistics about one you know ten percent of of people in any given market need a self storage uh, locker. So, but there have to be enough people to have enough demand to fill not only your property but all the other self storage facilities in your market. So, generally, when people are evaluating these, whether it be a, an appraiser or a lender, what they want to see is a lot of folks living near that facility. So the general rule is 50,000 people within a three-mile radius. Does that mean that if 40,000 people is is doomed for failure? No. Does it mean that 38,000 is? No. But it does mean if you're looking at a facility, and, and heaven knows they're there. I live in southeast Missouri, and there's a couple around me that are in areas that are way too rural to be a success. And, in fact, they are sitting there, you know, maybe half empty or more, probably no chance of ever getting full because there simply is not enough population density. So that's, that's the first item is basically you need a lot of, a lot of people. Right. And you're kind of going along with that is, you know, you need to have a pretty high traffic count. You know, you need to have people driving by that facility and so they actually see it, know where, you know, it's there. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, by having a high traffic count, you also have, you know, you know maybe between work and home or, you know, work in the, you know, shopping center or whatever. So people, you know, see it, and it's convenient for them to you know actually store stuff there. And if they are, they do want to, you know, put things in there or take it out, you know, it's it's something that is on their normal route. You know, kind of, you know, the same point as before is you don't want it to be you know five miles outside of town um, because it's got to be convenient. It's got to be very convenient for you know the people to get in and out and um, you know on their normal route. So you know, we typically say about a twenty-five thousand uh, you know cars per day would be you know going by that self storage facility. Yeah, and again, it doesn't have to be exactly 25. In other words, uh, there, you know, many of the U.S. highways have 100,000 a day traffic counts, and if you got that, that's great. And if you're looking at one that's got a, uh, you know, 18,000 cars a day, well, that's, that may be okay. But having having one on a, on a traffic count of a thousand cars a day, that's probably not a good idea. And those first two points really kind of tie together, right, Dave? Because I mean, you're talking yep. just you need a lot of people around, right? For sure. Uh, you know, the th- third item, which makes sense, is you need to have a fairly decent median household income. The, the, the rule of thumb is $50,000 a year as being your, that market's median income. And the reason that makes sense is, number one, self-storage is not free. If it was free, it would not be a high-yield high opportunity. Uh, you know, the average locker, like the one I have, is $100 a month. I have one that's 100 and one that's 60 so I pay 160 a month in self-storage fees. Uh, you know, you're not going to be paying $100 a month 
unless you've got at least enough discretionary income to afford to pay that. And the other part of it is if you don't have a relatively high median household income in that market, it's unlikely those people own enough material possessions to stick in a locker to begin with. So, you know, if you look at a hard scrabble market, let's say you're looking at a market in southern Illinois, just as an example, where median incomes are relatively low, uh, it's it's probably true that the folks there are, A, not going to want to spend the money, and B, they don't have much to store. So, again, if you're looking at a market and the household income is 48000 does that mean it's a no-go? No, not at all. It could be fine. You could have a market 40000 maybe even 35000 30000 but you have to really know your market, and you have to be very, very careful when you see that median income low. So the takeaway from that is you just have to be in a place where people are wealthy enough to afford the monthly rent and have things to store. Um, and the next item, which is you know really key for any type of real estate or commercial and you know commercial type of real estate investment, is that you have to have a, a good low market vacancy. So you know if you're looking at a facility in you know you know outside of Denver, Colorado, and there's five other facilities, and they all have these huge advertising banners saying great move-in specials and all that, and they're all 20% occupied. You know that's probably a market to avoid. So. What you're looking for is, you know, a facility that's, you know, 80%, you know, 90% occupied, and there's not a lot of other ones right in that general area that are, you know, you know, you know, highly vacant. So they're going to be pulling your customers, um, you know, from that 80% occupancy. So, you know, you know, I guess our general rule of thumb is, you know, you want to have at least 70 to, you know, 80% occupancy in that market um, to make it work, because you know, otherwise you could be you know, you know, f- fighting for customers all day long with everybody else, and um, people will be jumping around, you know, for the best move-in special. Right, exactly. Uh, and this next one is, is makes complete logical sense, but it's more of a threat in self-storage than it is, for example, in mobile home parks or RV parks, because, you know, typically most towns don't like mobile home parks, so they don't want to have any more in their town, so they don't allow new ones to be built. But self-storage is different. A lot of towns like self-storage, they think that they're they're clean and attractive and a good use of land. So you have to make sure in the market you're looking at that they don't have a lot of opportunities to build more self-storage, uh, either through having the wrong zonings or the price of land being too high to build a self-storage. I'll give you uh, two real-life examples of this. One, one is San Francisco, California, which is probably the tightest self-storage market in the U.S. They have near near 100% occupancy. And the reason being, you clearly cannot build any self-storage facility today in greater downtown San Francisco because the land is so expensive. You're talking land there that can be up to, you know, $1,000 a square foot. Uh, you can't build a self-storage facility on that. That would have to be obviously very expensive high-rise land. Uh, so, and the second thing is there's, there's hardly any undeveloped land in San Francisco. So as a result, if you own a facility in San Francisco, you're looking great because they can't build any. If you take another market in California, such as Sacramento, lots of land, lots of nice, flat, buildable land out there. And as a result, the market's always been terrible there. So every time their occupancy gets up to a decent number, someone goes out and builds another self-storage facility and drops the occupancy back down again. So you have to be very, very used to looking to make sure there are no barriers. Now, let's say you're looking at a facility, and does that mean you have to walk the deal because there's a piece of land that is zoned for, for self-storage? No. 
we're just saying you have to you know use, use your common sense if there's a lot of, of buildable land then the odds are the market will never be very good because people will just keep building them so you always want to watch your barriers all right. And the next uh, you know, item is really more of a statistic, um, and it ties back with the uh, you know, number of people, the density, the traffic count. But it's you know you don't want to have more than six square feet of uh, self storage for every person in that market. So if you have a population of a hundred thousand people, um, you don't want to have uh, more than six hundred thousand square feet of self storage, and you know, that ties back to you know you know ten percent of all people would use a self storage and. You know, you know how, how many people would you, or how much storage would you need for you know that market of 100,000 people? Yeah, see that that, that statistic really ties it all together, as Dave is saying, because it ties not only the population but also the the market, the available stuff, which will tie to vacancy and everything else. And again, you know, if you're a little off, if your market doesn't, if, if the market should have not more than 600,000 square feet and it has 700,000 square feet, is that a deal killer? Not necessarily, but obviously, if you're if you're looking at, at a place where there's you know, one million square foot for every people, uh, then or for every person, then that probably is not a good spot. Uh, San Francisco, in fact, if you lay their numbers into that, you would immediately see why San Francisco is so tight, because they have nowhere near six square feet for each person. Uh, next one is, is just a general rule of thumb, and this ties mostly back to financing. But most people want to work in a world where the rental rates are about a dollar a square foot. Uh, that's just because to hit those key numbers as far as scale and everything else, you need to have revenue of about a dollar a square foot. You know, there are markets out there where it's measured in the in the pennies, right? I mean, there probably if you go into into a derelict part of Mississippi or somewhere, you could find self storage. It might be a quarter a foot, or I don't know, a, a nickel a foot or something. But the problem is, you know, your big institutional finance companies, they don't much like that. They want to have those things around a buck. So, again, if you're looking at one and the rent's 95 cents, that's okay, right? But we're saying it needs to be somewhere around a dollar. Right. And the next item is, you know, you know, more so on a typical market. You know, we're not talking San Francisco or, you know, Manhattan or something. But, you know, typically people want to, you know, to have a single-level self-storage where they can actually back their car or their truck up to the door and unload or load stuff up. You know, they don't want to, you know, drive into a parking lot and then, you know, start hauling stuff up, you know, five levels and, uh, you know, storing it and, you know, you know, picking it up and dropping it off that way. So unless you're in a really, really tight market where you, know, you have to have a multi-level, you know, you know multi-story building, um, to, you know, to cover the demand, you know, typically you just want those, you know, single-level buildings. Right, exactly. Uh and then last is, which ties to what Dave just said, is, is kind of that institutional grade construction. So, you know, they, they, uh, the industry has had different, several different versions in its lifespan of what people build. They're called generations. They're like generation one, generation two. The early generations of it are pretty good. I mean, they have a roll-up door. You pull up, you put your stuff in, and you're done. The, the later ones, the most modern generations of, of the industry, some of that's really bad ideas. Uh, the, the multi-story where you have to put your stuff on a dolly, take it up an elevator, People hate that stuff. That stuff is done very poorly. People don't want to be a second and third floor self-storage locker person. Uh, you know, one example I'll give you in San Francisco, there's a facility that's it's a remodeled uh, sporting goods store. You know, banks banks don't like that. They like stuff to be, you know, built on modern standards. So, again, you know, a good thing to have is one that looks like a self-storage facility should look. 
And I guess we're going to go to break now. When we come back, we're going to start talking a little bit more in depth about how to choose and what to look at for in facilities, plus some predictions. So this is Frank Roth and Dave Reynolds. We'll be right back in a minute. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you are looking for the highest yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20% plus returns on your money and offers you college-quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today. Mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self-storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com or call 800-950-1364. That number again is 800-950-1364. Or visit the website at CREUniversity.com. Hi, I'm Kurt Kelly. President of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self-storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need, explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800-458-4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to insure investment properties. The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus and Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303-328-2049. That's 303-328-2049. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can send an email to frank.rolfe at gmail.com. Now, back to High Yield. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're talking today about self-storage investing and the high-yield opportunities there are in that industry. Now, we've been talking about the industry and about some of the different facts and figures and things you need to watch out for. Now we're going to talk also a little bit about, because a big part of high-yield, in our opinion, is to keep you out of trouble as much as to show you what where the opportunities are. We're going to talk a little bit about things you need to avoid or watch out for in a self-storage facility. 
Uh, and basically, I guess we'll start off by saying the reverse of everything we just told you before the break. Uh, you know, rural markets, high market vacancy, poor visibility, more than six square feet per person in, in, in uh, supply, rents under a buck. Those good old multi-level facilities, uh, funky non-institutional grade buildings, all those things are things you want to avoid, that's for sure. So, uh, you know, think about the list we went over before break, take that and do a, a reverse of that, and those are some key items you need to, need, to, need to be aware of. You know, probably of that list, Dave, I don't know about you, I, I would say the number one killer on that for most people would probably be those uh, rural markets. Because I, I again, I live in southeast Missouri, and for some reason, back in the back in the day, maybe 20 years ago, a lot of people kind of got crazy on building self storage down here in southeast Missouri. I mean, there, there's facilities everywhere as you go up and down Interstate 55, and many of those things are just emptier than empty can be. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I would agree because that that rural market one basically throws off every single one of the other you know, items. So, you know, where if you have a rural market, you're, you're under the 50,000 people, your traffic counts down, your in, median income's usually down, you probably have high vacancy. So, um, you, know, you know, that rural market throws everything else out. So if you're going to cheat on any of those items, probably the one you don't cheat on is definitely the rural market one. Yeah, it's just, you know, there are, there are things out there that work in rural areas and real estate. You know, we went over RV parks. Those can work in rural areas. Mobile home parks can work in rural areas if it's the right area. The self-storage, just because of the way it's set up, it just doesn't work really good in in those kind of way out in the middle of nowhere markets. You know, one other item that I, I've seen firsthand, there, there's this kind of legendarily failed self-storage facility over just outside San Francisco. And what makes it so classically awful is, is it has the worst visibility you ever saw. I mean, you know, it's an area where everything is full, and it's sitting there at half empty or worse. And even though they offer great specials and everything else, and everybody really wants the space, you simply cannot even find the facility. Whoever built this thing, I guess they never understood the concept of visibility, but you can't, you can't see it, you can't find it. You literally have to get off, off a road and go down a ways and, and, and take another left, take another right, even the very entrance itself is bizarre because it's on an L-shaped piece of property where it's very, very little actual exposure on the road. So if you're not t- paying complete attention, you'll drive right by the entrance. So, again, I, I mean, I would peg those two as the worst, rural and zero visibility because self-storage is kind of a consumer product and people need to be able to find you. So those would, those would two, be two bad things. And, and now we're going to go through some other just – additional items that you should watch for in due diligence that could sink you if you don't find them. For sure. Yeah, I guess the first one is, you know, your title policy. You know, when you go buy any, you know, piece of, you know, real estate, you need to make sure that you have a title policy and that, you know, you're getting, you know, the the actual, you know, property, you know, free of any, you know, liens or, you know, easements and, you know, things like that. So you, you have to have a very good title policy, uh, and, you know, that goes for, you know, every type of real estate, but it's, you know, really number one on the list. You can't buy something and then, uh, you know, you have a bunch of, you know, liens or encroachments or, you know, you know, things that will, you know, cause your ownership not to be, uh, you know, illegitimate, basically. 
Yeah, it's kind of like buying, buying the old, uh, you know, buying the uh, Golden Gate Bridge or something from the guy who, you know, you meet on the street that'll sell to you for a hundred dollars. I mean, it doesn't buying things from people means nothing unless the title goes with it. So you have to have good title. Next is survey. You know, Dave and I have a million stories of surveys gone bad and what can pop up. You know, probably some of the biggest ones to watch for. One is floodplain. That can be a big one. So you know, you would probably not want to own a self storage facility in a floodplain simply because your your customers would always be at risk of having their, their goods flooded out, and it would make it very, very hard to resell or finance. But other issues that can pop up even beyond floodplain are, are situations where you don't own all the pieces you need for your facility. I mean, Dave and I have seen uh, surveys that show you know roads where the property owner does not actually have a legal easement to get to his property. Uh, I once bought a property without paying attention, even though I used a very expensive law firm, uh, that I, in fact, did not buy the entire property. So you have to be very, very careful to match your title to your survey and make sure that your survey is what you think you're buying. So surveys are, again, a very, very important item. If it, if it does not have a good survey, bear in mind, and even if you are a risk taker and you're willing to buy it with a lousy survey with lots of floodplain or without a, a legal entrance, imagine what will happen when you go to resell it. Or go to refinance it. Not, it's not going to be pretty, right? And you know, kind of, kind of, just as a, an addition to that floodplain thing on a you know, self storage facility where you know, everybody's storing their stuff there on the ground, basically, you know, inside a building. You know, you have to have very good drainage. You know, you know, even even though you may not be in a floodplain, you, you need to make sure that you know when it rains, uh, you know, typical for that market, you know, or it rains even twice as hard. That you know, all that water is not going to end up inside the units; that it's going to actually drain out somewhere. So it's very important to to be cautious of that drainage because you don't want everybody's stuff to be ruined. And if that happens, you know, nobody else is going to bring you know stuff into those you know, units in the future. So you're basically lost your investment. Yeah, I mean, you you would not want a self storage facility that's only geared to keeping aquatic reptiles alive. <laughs> so you don't want to have a wet self storage facility. Dave is exactly correct. Uh, next one is the Phase One report. Now, what that is, if you're unfamiliar, and if you if you gain nothing else from listening to our show than this one item, it would theoretically save your life. Uh, the Phase One is something that the government devised to help alleviate the worry and concern about environmental contamination on your property. So, what it is, it's an environmental report by a licensed environmental engineer, and he tells you whether or not your property should contain some form of environmental pollution that you would then theoretically have to fix, which can be very, very expensive. Uh, you know, we, we never buy a property without a Phase 1. Uh, there are exceptions. I didn't do a Phase 1 on my house. Traditionally, you do not do Phase 1 reports on residential real estate, although you could. But in commercial real estate of any type, you, you normally want to get a Phase 1 report. And again, it's, it's just an environmental assessment to let you know that what you're buying is, is good to go and doesn't have any, any pollution on it. Sure. And next item would be, uh, you know, basically a building condition report. And, you know, this is something, you know, if you're not a contractor and know how to, to uh, you know, build and repair buildings, you need to hire somebody that actually comes out and, you know, puts together a report. You know, they've got to check the roof and check the, the doors and you know, and all those type of things. And, you know, here again, they might check the drainage and, and you know, the asphalt, you know, whatever there's on the building um, for that, you know, Self storage facilities, so it's a you know it's kind of like the property condition report you get when you buy your house. You would actually you know, get the same type of a report for the self storage building. 
Right. And uh, next is, and Dave is a master at this, Dave, Dave is a, a CPA by training, so when it comes to budgets, you can't do any better than Dave. But you'd have to have a, a very solid budget based on actuals. And I have to underline the word actuals and also run, underline the word not pro forma. Because when you go to buy commercial real estate, a lot of times the broker doesn't want to show you the actual numbers. He wants to show you what are called the pro forma numbers, which is kind of a what-if scenario. So pro forma numbers would show you what the facility's numbers would be if it was 100% full or if you know some of the expenses were reduced or something. That doesn't mean anything. Okay, that, that's, that's what you should get if you buy it and fix it. That would be the benefits of your labor. But that isn't how you buy things. So you buy things based on the absolute actuals right now. How's it doing? Not not what ifs, but but the actuals. And you always want to buy something based on nothing more than those actuals. And most of the people that we know who get in trouble on things, what they did was they did not buy things at a good price based on the actual performance. They bought it based on the what if performance, that pro forma performance, and that's a bad thing. Right, and you know some other items you'll want to check check into, you know, when you're looking at the, you know, the numbers on, on the facility is, you know, you want to see the length of residency, you know, you don't want to, you know, you know, go buy a facility where everybody just moved in last month and, it, you know, was vacant, you know, two months ago, now it's, you know, got, you know, 85% occupancy, but they all moved in last month, that's, that's a sure, uh, you know, problem, you know, down the road, because they're probably not all going to stick. Right. Um, and, you know, you're, you know, you know what, what you typically see these brokers saying is, you know, they'll say, well, you know, you could you could easily rent out more units. The current owner just doesn't have the time, or you know, he's just a you know, not a good people person, and you know, he just doesn't do a good job. So you you can't ever buy into that because you know almost you know you know probably ninety five percent of the time out there, it's you know yeah sure you can blame the owner, but you know probably the facility if it was really in a good location and met all those other items we talked about, it would be you know near one hundred percent full even if the owner wasn't doing a great job. Right, and Dave's exactly correct. You know, a lot of people, when they make excuses on why they're not performing well, some of them are accurate. Many times they, they're trying to brainwash you that, oh, you can make it, you can make it happen, you can make it better. It's, it's so easy, I'm just a bad manager, when in fact there's, there's really nothing they're doing that bad. It's just the market's lousy or something along those lines. Uh, next is you always want to make sure you leave yourself plenty of fluff in your numbers, Never in your numbers so tight that you cannot afford to have and have a problem or slightly miss one of your estimates. You always want to have fluff because that's how life is. I mean, that's probably how your personal budget is at your house. You know, you're going to go to Walmart. You won't spend more than 50, but you end up spending 80. You know, you think your cell phone bill will be X, and it always comes in as being a little higher than X. That's just the way that life works. You always want to leave yourself a little fluff. And we're going to go to break here, and when we come back, we're going to go over a few more items you need to think about in due diligence as well as some predictions for the future. So this is Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you are looking for the highest yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. 
This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20% plus returns on your money and offers you college-quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today. Mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self-storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com or call 800-950-1364. That number again is 800-950-1364. Or visit the website at CREUniversity.com. The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest-income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus and Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303-328-2049. That's 303-328-2049. Hi, I'm Kurt Kelly, President of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self-storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need, explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800-458-4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to insure investment properties. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can send an email to Frank. Dot Rolf at gmail.com. Now, back to High Yield. Welcome back. We've been going over all things self-storage on today's show, and we've got a little bit more to go here. Uh, we're talking about some important items in due diligence to save your life from buying a lousy self-storage facility as opposed to a winner. Next on our list is simply to inspect and count all of the occupied units. You know, self-storage is kind of easy to tell vacancy from from non-vacancy, but it's uh, what you do is you basically look around and count those units that have locks on them, and it's generally assumed that the ones with locks on them have storage in them, and those that do not don't. Now, does that mean a guy can't cheat? No, you could. You could go out there and put some locks on units that actually are vacant, right? So it's not it's not a perfect world, but you would never want to buy a self-storage facility without a counting yourself manually every door to make sure you have every unit accounted for. I mean, if a guy says he has 100 units and there's only only 80, you'll never know unless you go out there and actually count them. So you're opening yourself up to all kinds of fraud. And then additionally, 
you know, on, on those units, count how many of those have locks on them, how many of those actually appear to be rented. Uh, but yeah, and on those, uh, go ahead. Um, you you, you want to make sure that you probably do some type of random sampling and you have the locks locks removed and look inside to make sure there's actually stuff being stored in there. Right, but but it's still, in other words, you know, storage is a funky animal because unlike mobile home parks where you have humans and they use electricity and water, uh, you know, could a guy theoretically go and just throw some junk in a locker and put the door down and put a lock on it and claim it's rented for 100 bucks a month. Theoretically, they could, right? So uh, you'll never get it perfect, but you'll be miles and miles ahead if you'll go out there and count and visually inspect, and as Dave says, test and look, than just to buy it based on what, what the seller simply says on paper. And you'd be shocked. And, you know, in Dave and I's career, you know, we've seen many cases of people buying things off nothing more than, you know, believing the word of the seller, which there are a lot of sellers out there that you can because they're 100% truthful, but there are also folks who, who don't. So you always want to be able to check all that stuff. Right. And then you can also verify all of that with, you know, you know, seeing a copy of the checks or the actual deposits and deposit slips and making sure that he's actually collecting money on all those units that he says is occupied. Right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, you know, another uh, item that you need to really you know, keep an eye out on is, you know, the, basically the market. You know, if you're in a market where, you have a really big uh, population drop. You know, everybody seems to be moving out to, you know, for another city or a bigger city or something. You know, you don't want to be in a market where your population is declining, you know, in a big way. Right. I mean, you know, obviously it's very hard to get people to to be all excited about spending that extra money on that self-storage locker when they're all leaving. So, uh, you know, you've, you've got to be in areas that are that are on the upswing and, you know, to give examples to that, probably the, the all-time best example of recent time would be Detroit. Now, I, I think it's probably hit bottom, but for a long time, nobody was moving in. Everyone was moving out. So you don't want to be in a market like that. Uh, last on the list is military bases. You know, military bases are huge users of self-storage, giant. In fact, uh, there's a whole lot of self-storage that the military actually covers the the bills for the folks in the military that need the storage because, you know, when a guy is deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever the case may be, they have to store his stuff. And the only danger thing we point out on that is, you know, we're, we're going into a very sketchy period regarding the U.S. military right now based on the U.S. budget. Additionally, with the ends of the war, and I've lost track at this point, Dave, which wars we're, 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 we're out of. I think we're out of Afghanistan, I think. I'm not sure. Right. But but in any event, as the military pulls back from those wars, as the budgets change, you know, it may have an impact on uh, self-storage that is directly near to and utilized by people in the military. So uh, now that's not it's not all bad because there are there are some bases out there that will that will be growing soon as the industry, you know, they start consolidating those bases together. So, for example, Fort Hood in Texas is rumored to, to be one that will actually expand going forward. But if you are in near a, a kind of a second-rate military base, it, it could be a problem. All right, well, now we're going to go into some predictions here on the future of self-storage. We've talked about the industry and how it works and what the opportunities are. Now we're just going to make some, some predictions and point out some things for you. The first one, which is a really big one, is that basically there are, there are 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day. And that that's a huge news story. You know, people have been talking about the baby boom for, for 
decades now, but it's actually it's finally occurring now. And you've got 10,000 people a day retiring. A lot of those people are going to be downsizing. Uh, they estimate that only 40% of baby boomers will, will remain in their home when they retire. So a lot of folks in downsizing are going to have all those prized possessions they don't want to get rid of, and they're going to put those in self-storage. For sure. Um, and then the you know, next item, you know, for the future, you know, is basically these, uh, you know, Generation 4 facilities, you know, with climate control, multi-levels, you know, you know those big new units, you know, you know, facilities that you see, you know, um, you know they're, they're, they're not really doing that well, you know, on a large scale. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, those are the ones that are going to continue to struggle. You know, they typically sold at very high prices. They cost a lot to build, and, you know, the income is just not supporting all, all of those costs. So, you know, what we see those as you're continuing to struggle, um, whereas the normal, you know, single-level facilities in, you know, high-dense markets and, um, you know, relatively well-up cap will continue to, you know, thrive. Yeah, in fact, I was in one day in California. They had 400 climate-controlled uh, wine storage lockers, you can believe this. And out of 400, he had 20 occupied. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know what you know. What do you put in there other than wine? I don't. Know, maybe hot dogs. I don't know. But <laughs> it's hard to make that work. Uh, also, you know, we predict that all forms of real estate, not just self storage, mobile home park, RV park, you name it, they will all continue to do well as interest rates remain low. And the way the U.S. economy is going right now, which is kind of the point of our entire show, is it's not doing well. So as long as it's struggling and, and having trouble getting anywhere and improving, the interest rate should remain low, and that's great for real estate. I mean, we're, we're doing notes right now. What's our lowest interest rate conduit loan we've done recently, Dave? Um, right at 4% for, you know, 10-year fixed. Yeah. So picture that, a 4% 10-year fixed. My, my, my grandfather would roll over in his grave if he knew you could get 4% 10-year fixed debt today. That just seems staggeringly unbelievable to me. Right, and, you know the, the the key there is you know you know any anything you buy you know whether it's self storage or you know anything you know you want to try to lock in those long term fixed rates as you know low as possible now because we all know at some point they're going to be going up. Absolutely, and uh, and I guess our last point here is uh, you know this is one industry that does well both going up and going down. So that's one neat thing about self storage is that uh, when when things are hot and people are moving in and things are going well, they buy lots of stuff. And they store them. But then also, when things are going terrible and the economy goes down the drain and they're selling their home and they're downsizing, they again have to store their stuff. And I guess the moral to it all, Dave, is that Americans just like to buy lots of stuff more than any other group in the, in the world. And as a result, they have this byproduct they've created where they have to store all that stuff that they buy. So whether it's a boat or an RV or, or whatever the case may be, self-storage is definitely here to stay and is not going anywhere. And I guess on that note, we'd like to thank everyone for tuning in on the show on self-storage and all the ins and outs and why it could be a high-yield opportunity for you. This is Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds, and signing off, we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you all. Thanks again for tuning in to High Yield. Please join Frank and Dave next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great and profitable week.